right, well, hey, when I teach my students in my senior philosophy of ethics class where I use understanding the times or actually understanding the culture by Dr. Jeff Myers, there's a whole section of how Christians have acted on Christian beliefs, on biblical beliefs, and really changed the world and made a difference. And this is often a shock to a lot of people of how really Christians have provided a foundation for so much that we have recognized as being good about our society today. And so that's going to be kind of the conversation that we're talking about today, but rather than using that understanding the culture book. We're using Dr. Jeff Meyer's new book, Truth Changes Everything, How People of Faith Can Transform the World in Times of Crisis. And so hopefully giving you a picture of what Christians have done in the past, as well as encouraging you and motivating you of how you can make change in this cultural moment, acting on those Christian biblical beliefs. So Dr. Jeff, let's first say, hey, thank you so much for being here. Dr. Jeff Myers is the president of Summit Ministries, uh, been there for about 10 years, doing wonderful, wonderful work with Summit. So Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show and having a chat with me today. Hey, I'm happy to do it, Ryan. And thank you for being part of the Summit Ministries faculty. The students have loved having you out here at Summit in Colorado. Yeah, I, that was uh, an exciting call that I got when I was uh, asked to join the faculty uh, for this past summer. And uh, anyways, I loved it. We went, my wife, family, my son, and my, my son had a good time. You didn't, maybe not won't remember it uh, being only <laughs> nine months old or so, but uh, we had a wonderful time. We will remember time. him. We share a hairstyle. <laughs> you do. His <laughs> hair is crazy. Um, anyways, we absolutely loved our time. And, and I'm so excited to say that I will be heading back out next summer in July. I think session five, uh, I'll be joining back again for faculty and residents. So um, maybe if we can just really quick, before we jump into the book, uh, since we are talking about me serving as faculty and Summit, for those who are maybe watching who are not familiar with what Summit Ministry is, is uh, can you kind of give a brief overview of what uh, Summit does? Well, at its core, Summit is preparing this rising generation to embrace God's truth, number one, and number two, to champion a biblical worldview. We recognize there's a battle of worldviews. There are a lot of counterfeit worldviews out there. And a lot of people who say they believe in Jesus don't really understand how that applies to every area of life. So Summit helps fill in all those gaps for them, bringing in world-class faculty who can help them find answers to their difficult questions and prepare to be leaders in a world that's really in a time of crisis. And we're doing that through our in-person programs, through curriculum courses, and then through uh, a lot of media as well. So it's a it's pretty broad ranging, but we're working intensively with about 70,000 students every year. Wow, that is amazing. And it is a fun being a part of because again, uh, my, my goal, my passion, what I do with this channel uh, is trying to train people to think well and engage the culture with a biblical worldview. And that really is what Summit is focusing on as well. And that's yeah. what this book is kind of focusing on as well with that. And so I'm excited to kind of talk through this and try to give people that framework for cultural engagement and what they really can do acting on those biblical beliefs. So kind of starting off uh, in a sense, kind of a big picture idea, this new book that you've kind of produced, kind of what was the thought behind it? And what are you trying to communicate for anyone who who's going to go pick up a copy of this. There's a personal story involved, Ryan, in this, where I, I was not only noticing that our culture is in a time of crisis, but I was personally in a time of crisis. I got a cancer diagnosis. And even though the doctors assured me that with aggressive treatment, we could likely beat the cancer, I still thought this might be the last book I ever get to write. Hmm. You know, what would you write about? Right. If if you thought it might be the last book you could write, if you had one more lecture to give, what would you say? If you had one more phone call, what would you say? A lot of life gets compressed into those moments when you realize, oh, how I respond in this time of crisis, what my message is now may be the most important thing I ever get to say. So 
I decided we have got to engage on this question of truth. There is a battle raging between what I call capital T truth, the idea that truth really exists and can be known by us, not exhaustively and not easily, but it can be known. And then the more current idea that there's no such thing as truth, capital T, all we have are truths, small t. None of us can know reality. We can only just have our personal experiences. Well, that second viewpoint, Ryan, and you know this because you talk about this on your show a lot, that second viewpoint has now become the majority viewpoint. So now we're in, literally in a place where people believe truth is up to the individual. And they don't just mean that, you know, hey, speak your truth, man, you know, like be, give your opinions and be confident about it. That's not what's meant. What's meant is no understanding of reality exists that we can hold mutually and in common that will lead us to develop a common national sense of purpose or common sense of purpose in our community or really in any other way. So we're all just sort of adrift now thinking that whatever we believe is true is true for us. Yeah. Now, would you say when someone is making that kind of claim and talking about small T truths that they're saying that they can make truth whatever they want it to be or that they just don't have access to that capital T truth and therefore they just kind of believe what is true for them or can they really make anything true? I, I think people are trying to make anything true. So if you if, if you don't have if there's so let's take justice as an example, if there's no truth that is objectively true then justice does not exist. All we have are our individual perceptions of what is just or unjust. Right. So if we try to influence someone else to see things the way we see them, we can't use persuasion anymore because there's nothing to persuade them to. All we can do is use power to force our viewpoint onto them and to cancel them or shame them if they don't agree with us. So persuasion gets replaced with power knowledge and confidence gets replaced with confusion and with the younger generation that you and I work with it's horrible right now 75% of young adults say they do not have a sense of purpose that gives them meaning in life yeah. Fifth, more than 50% say they regularly struggle with anxiety and depression if you pull the ground out from under an entire generation this is what happens yeah. And it's so sad. I mean, I, we, we saw this, my, my wife and I, as we traveled this summer and spent a lot of time at a lot of different camps and retreats um, and just talking with students and, and seeing the confusion that they're dealing with and, and seeing the, the issues that they're wrestling with and, and being at junior high camps and being like, man, junior higher shouldn't have to wrestle with these things. Uh, the, the, the pressures that are being put on them and, and trying to figure these things out. And it's like, man, you should just be having fun at camp <laughs> and enjoying these things right. rather than kind of these pressures that get put on them for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. go for it. No, I, I think that's oh. I think that's true. And so if you think about what pressure we put on young people in the way we try to give them confidence, we say things like you are all you need. And now, now if you have to process that through the mind of a middle school young person, they know they're not all they need. They yeah. know that there's got to be something out there to move toward. I mean, saying that you're all you need is sort of like going out into the wilderness thinking you'll always be found as long as the needle on the compass points toward you. No, you won't be more found. You will be more lost. Right. And we all know this. We have to locate something outside of us that is our true north. And, and I guess that was the entire point of the book was, man, if I only had one thing left I could communicate, that's what it would be.
Yeah. Now, when it comes to these kind of views, it's it's becoming more popular. Do you think that this kind of small T truths is becoming more popular because of persuasion and people seeing reasons for it? Or um, what is kind of so attractive? Why are people being drawn to this understanding that there is no capital T truth that we can know for sure? Well, I wonder if it's different in different countries. So I'm speaking completely from an American context. And I know people are watching this program who live in other countries. But in this country, people prize the individual. So they'll say, you know, the individual is sovereign. The individual is autonomous. You can't tell me what to do or believe because I'm an American, right? So when somebody says truth is up to the individual, Americans tend to say, yeah, that, that sounds pretty good. That sounds like a good patriotic stance. Never really considering that if truth is up to the individual, neither the word truth nor the word individual have any meaning. Yeah, because there's there's truth to meaning that then goes into the words that we're even talking about. Right. Truth does tend to rise. There's not <laughs> you, can't, you can't think of another way to put it. If somebody says there's no truth, then they've proclaimed the existence of a truth. Right. If someone says there's no ultimate meaning, they've proclaimed some ultimate meaning about ultimate meaning. So truth does tend to rise. That's not the only reason we should believe that truth exists, but it's it's it ought to clue us in that, wow, we just can't use words however we want. We have to kind of make sense of all of this. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I wanna kind of make sense of this a little bit because Again, your, your book goes into some great examples that I want to talk about, but I, I've also heard a lot of concerns and pushback against this kind of Christian view of capital T truth that I want to kind of work through with you here a little bit. And the first one is actually something I just saw on Twitter just before I left work to come home today, and that was someone saying that they deconstructed from the Christian faith because of the arrogance of Christians claiming that they have the only true gospel, they have the only truth, and that everyone else is wrong. And so what would you kind of say to this response of saying like, hey, to, to claim that we have have the truth and all of you are wrong, that is an arrogance that we shouldn't have. Well, there, there are a couple of things to keep in mind here. The person who says, I left Christianity behind because it is arrogant and claims that it has the only truth, is claiming to know a truth that is better than the truth of Christianity. So they've actually put themselves in the spotlight, so to speak, as a person who's guilty of the very thing they say they're leaving behind. Now, how you communicate about that obviously depends on what kind of a relationship you have with the person. But I, I think I would go a little bit further and ask, if there is such a thing as truth, ought we proclaim it or not? I just got off of a, a radio interview in Florida. If you knew, because there was a hurricane there a couple of weeks ago, if you knew there was a hurricane coming and you didn't see anything, hmm. are you being inoffensive? Are you being nice? No. You're being cruel. You, if there is such a thing as truth, then we ought to figure out how to communicate it. Now, I, at the same time, I get it. I take, I take counsel from that. If somebody says everybody who is a Christian has presented the, who is a Christian has presented the truth to me in an arrogant way, I, I, I'd really doubt that that's true. But if it is, it's very sad. Because from a biblical perspective, truth isn't just a set of logical propositions, not just a mathematical formula that provides an accurate model of the universe. It's a person. It's Jesus. If people are communicating truth without doing it in a way that, that, is, that represents Jesus, then they're not really communicating the full truth. Yeah. Now, what if... Um... 
I'm trying to think of some more objections and, and they come to mind as you're talking. Uh, so playing kind of the devil's advocate of, of saying like, okay, so what if, you know, your hurricane example, like clearly, yeah, if a hurricane's coming and you know it's coming, we should be warning people. But what about the issues where like we, we don't know for sure and, and, and maybe uh, scholars and experts are going to disagree? Like uh, how confident does one have to be to be able to claim this is true and those are wrong versus, hey, we're not sure. Let's all just kind of get along. Sure. Well, I have to say that the pursuit of truth is directional. We would we would say instead of hitting each other in the head like this, let's just be side by side moving toward the truth. In every area that I can think of right now, people explore things, they develop arguments, they de set forward propositions, other people disagree. And the hope is that through time, we all come to a better understanding of the truth. In science, for instance, this is the way it works. Science is essentially the full embrace of failure for the pursuit of understanding of the physical world. Right? The whole, the whole point of science is that we, we do experiments. They don't work. Other people can't replicate them. We try to learn. We try to grow. We line out our hypotheses. We test them. And, and we're always in this process of moving toward the truth. But people doing science don't start with the assumption that nothing can ever be known. That, that doesn't even make any sense, right? Science, if I were to say, for example, water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level, a person might say, well, you know, it depends on atmospheric conditions or this or that. Right. But nobody's going to say, hey, man, keep your opinions to yourself. You know, you, you have your truth. I have my truth. No, that that wouldn't be an appropriate response to a statement like that. Yeah. Well, if there are scientific truths, are there other kinds of truths? And I think the, the answer is yes, they're historical truths. Uh, I was visiting with somebody earlier today and I said, if I were to say Martin Luther King was shot on April 4th, 1968, you might say, well, maybe it was the fifth or whatever. But you wouldn't say, well, look, in my culture, it's different. In my culture, Martin Luther King was shot in September. No, we know we assuming that we're using a calendar that accurately represents the way we're all going to frame this, then it's a historical fact. But Ryan, there are also moral facts. And I know you go over this a lot with your students. There's a knowable difference between different different kinds of moral claims. So if I make two statements, statement A, it is good to care for abandoned puppies. And statement B it is good to torture to the point of pain abandoned puppies. We would know that there is a difference between those two statements. And it isn't just in how we use words. There is a real knowable difference. Well, that ought to lead us to exploring the possibility that truth is out there. And maybe right. the problem is that we aren't paying attention or that we can't see it fully because we haven't understood all of the variables or, and this is comes up all the time in the writings of the apostle Paul, maybe we're deceiving ourselves so that we actually see the opposite of what is really so. Yeah. But you know, I, I let me give you a quick example from mental yeah. health in the mental health area. Psychiatrists will tell you the very first step to gaining mental health is to acknowledge and embrace reality. Not you be you, or yeah. you believe whatever you want to believe. Or if you think you're a cat, then you are a cat. It is, no, you embrace reality. That's the first step toward healing. If you can't do that, you can never get well. Yeah.
Yeah, you mentioned talking about those moral truths of my students. That literally was the conversation of my worldview class today as we were going through Understanding the Times and we're on the chapter on secularism and talking about the secular narrative being grounded uh, most in, in a materialistic view and kind of then what follows and flows from that. And the conversation quickly then turned to, oh, okay, so, so where does human value come from? And why, what if someone says chickens are as valuable or more valuable than humans? Isn't that just simply a preference? Isn't that just simply an opinion? And so kind of, I'm curious how you would respond to that of like, how can we, how can we know a, more, a value claim like human beings are more valuable than chickens, therefore, or, you know, uh, we can, you know, or just, I guess, leave it at that. How would you explain that we're yeah. more valuable to someone that kind of has that secular narrative, secular frame, framework? Well, the first thing you've got to do, and I don't, I don't mean to just devolve into philosophical arguments about this, <laughs> but the first thing you've got to do is define what you mean by value. So Peter Singer, who is an ethicist, so-called ethicist at Princeton University, says that the core of value of a living organism is sentience. How much does it know about its world? And if it's got a higher level of knowing about its world, for example, elephants and dolphins, then they would have more value than, say, lizards and not maybe as much value as human beings. But baby human beings wouldn't have as much value as adult human beings because they don't have as much knowledge about their world. The biblical perspective says you don't start with sentience, you start with God. You actually start with the image of God that is in each person. And people write about the soul. Most people think that something like a soul exists because they know that they aren't just their physical body. I had my appendix removed when I was a kid. I didn't become any less Jeff because I didn't have an appendix than I was before. Uh, I'm still Jeff, even though I'm a lot older than I was in elementary school. <laughs> my sub, you know, my substance is exists and it is continuous. And I sense that it has value. Humans also have the ability to communicate in a way that other creatures do not communicate. There are all kinds of things, and we can go into as much detail as you like, about evidence that human beings bear God's image. But it's only that belief that formed us to the place where in the Western world, the core assumption is a human has value. Well, and that's kind of, that's one of the first chapter you kind of get into. And I guess I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because I had one more question about uh, kind of basic truth and jumping in, uh, but maybe we can kind of run with that. And and how is that different then? Because another thing you talk about, and I've been discussing with my students in the chapter on secularism in, and I think why people are so surprised at, at the content in this book of how Christians acting on biblical beliefs and Jesus followers have given us much of what we value in this world, like education and medicine and, and, and human rights and human dignity and women and children's rights and all this kind of stuff, uh, because there's a narrative out there in our culture that is very different, that, you know, religion poisons everything, that, that it's the religion and the, especially the Christian that is the problem. Um, you know, can, can you kind of walk through that narrative, which is why I think a lot of people are surprised to hear that Christians kind of led the charge in a lot of these different areas. I think there'll be a lot of people who are surprised, probably a lot of people who are upset, but that's okay. That's all part of the book writing process. I give evidence for everything that I say. I think I've got I've got several hundred footnotes in the book just because I thought some people are going to say this can't really be the case. Well, look yeah. it up. This is the way it is. So, uh, so why would I why would I start with with all of that? Why would I say all all of it to begin with? And I think I think 
I, I just realized that that narrative that religion poisons everything might be true of some religions, but probably not even most religions in the world. In fact, when it comes to Christianity, it's actually completely false. It is a totally false narrative. Even today, if you just look at the economic value of the contributions Christians make and their efforts to do good to other people, it's, a, it's, it's the economic equivalent, and this comes from two researchers from a major university. I don't, even, I don't know whether they're believers or not, but they're just acknowledging this. $2.67 trillion a year in the United States alone of economic value. That's like 20% of the economy just based on the good works that Christians do because they love Jesus. If you look at uh, giving to the overseas poor, the uh, American Christians give $44 billion a year to the overseas poor. The United States federal government only gives $33 billion a year. So this, it, it, if you look around at people who are helping addicts overcome their addiction, there are 130,000 addiction programs in the United States of America. Nearly all of them, nearly 100% are based in churches. So... I don't know why people say that. I think they're, yeah. they, I don't know why they would lie in that way, but it's clearly a lie. And I just give fact after fact in this book to demonstrate that it's true. Yeah. But the, the, my best, the, that's the stat, the facts aren't the most fun part. The most fun part to me is all the stories. There are about 75 stories, most of which uh, people haven't really heard or haven't been written about that much of uh, unbelievable stories of believers who love Jesus so much that they could not help but be the very best scientists, artists, educators, political theorists, and so forth that they could be. Yeah. Yeah. I remember be being in a conversation with a friend once and kind of getting the, the pushback or the challenge of like, why do you guys just try to argue with people about God and convince them that your view is, is true? Why don't you do something actually useful and productive in society? And I remember him responding like, my church gives away over $2 million a year and digs wells for clean water and like, like what, what more do you want? Like, you know, not, not trying to like pride himself on all the amazing stuff he's done, but it's like, this isn't all that we do. This is maybe what you see because I'm not out there advertising every time I write a check or do something like that and, and give away money. Um, I don't know who writes checks anymore. But anyways, um, actually, I wrote one yesterday. <laughs> I wrote one yesterday to pay for my air conditioning repair. Um, no, anyway. I, I go online and I tell the bank to write a check. I haven't seen a check personally for, for years. But l let me, you know, let me give a l let me give a, a point here that I think might be helpful to people from a secular worldview. Why would you do any of those things? Why would you help anyone? Uh, why wouldn't Makes you just you kill good. them? All right. If somebody's hungry, well, why not just kill them? Because it's one less eater. It's one less person to have in the world. If there's no such thing as truth that can be discovered, then why isn't force or violence better than persuasion and alleviating of suffering? So it, it seems like there's a whole lot at stake here. And people tend to sit in God's lap so that they can reach up to slap him in the face. And, and we all know that what you just said is, is true. I think the, the common example I use with students today is, is like a Thanos world, right? Where we saw this in Avengers Endgame and Infinity War, this idea of Thanos is saying, hey, I'm going to snap out half the world's population so that the other half flourish and there's enough resources for everybody. And we don't go, wow, look at him trying to really allow for the rest to flourish. He said, we, right. He's the villain. 
And it's the superheroes who give of their life to try to save yeah. everybody that we see as the heroes. And so we know this deep down. Now, as the we Thanos kind of work- mistake, I just I want to mention that because I actually oh, yeah. used the, that quotation in the book. But be, because the Thanos mistake is the idea that only the material world exists. So the total amount of resources would be fixed. But that isn't true. Right. I quote in the book from a Nobel Prize winning scientist who are Nobel Prize winning economist whose groundbreaking research demonstrated conclusively that human beings are not the problem. Human beings are the solution to the problem. Yeah. And he's not coming at it from a faith perspective at all. Yeah. I just heard recently the same thing of if, if all humans died from the face of the planet, that our world would be a better place. And, um, you know, and that really, is that a worldview, uh, picture of like, we are the problem, we are the poison and, and, and the world, mother yeah. earth would be better without us. Well, um, if the physical world is all there is, you, you could argue that you would eventually get to the point where resources would be so depleted that you could never use them. But that isn't how the world ends up going. There are actually more people dying today from overeating than from starvation. Starvation is almost a thing of the past hmm. unless governments become totalitarian and then they can actually create starvation conditions. Interesting. Now, what if someone flips over to kind of the, the opposite, right? So we, we started this whole conversation talking about those who are rejecting truth and, and, and it's all these kind of lower T capital T or, or lower key truths uh, instead of the capital T truth. Uh, what about kind of the other side? Cause I, I see critiques uh, online of, you know, where they're critiquing Christians that all Christians care about is truth. And really we lose the love aspect and, and yeah, Christians say truth and grace, but really like, uh, you know, people are being uh, accusing Christians. And, and I think I've seen it, you know, online and there's examples where it's like, man, it sure seems like we're just trying to stick to the truth and we've really lost the grace and the mercy and the compassion side of it. It's like, nope, that's the law, you know, figure it out sort of thing. And so kind of how would you <laughs> encourage someone uh, away maybe from that? And so we're critiquing, yes, don't give up truth, but also don't give up the other side as well. Right. I have yet to see a person who's honestly 100% invested in, in, in love make that critique. It's only the people who are, you know, wanting to sort of, sort of pick at things from the sidelines. They're not really wanting to get in the game. Uh, you know, if, if somebody says to me, I am a hundred percent invested in loving people. I'm serving people all of the time. I'm working in the, with the urban poor. I'm working with the least of the least and you need to care less about truth and get out here and work with me. I respect that a lot more, but that's not usually what I see. People hmm. like that are like, Hey, please join me because this, this is what you do out of love of Jesus, which has a strong Christian tradition, by the way, uh, Catherine of Siena, who's very well known to your Catholic viewers because there's a feast day, but Catherine of Siena was asked, well, you know, why do you, why do you serve the poor? Why are you running toward the people who are dying of the plague rather than like the rest of us running away from them? And she said, well, Jesus is with those who suffer. And I want to be with Jesus. So if you want to be with Jesus, you go to the suffering because that's where Jesus is. Yeah. And yeah, you talk about the black pig in the beginning of the book. And again, I think this is a huge aspect of seeing Christians acting on that. And so uh, I'm curious, kind of last question here on the uh, of, of things I've heard and seen online as I, I, I recently had an objection or, or at least a, a thought experiment presented to me and I responded and I made a video response uh, to it. Um, but it was the asking the question of if you had to pick 
between right beliefs, so you believe true things versus right action, and you act in love, but you believe false things. And the equivalent was a Christian who believed the right things, but acted inappropriately and, and killed people versus a, a Muslim who believes the wrong things, but loves people and tries to save people. If you had to pick between truth and love, which one would you pick? Which one is more valuable? <laughs> it sounds like, that sounds like, uh, is God powerful enough to create a square circle? <laughs> No, there's a, such a thing as a square and there's such a thing as a circle. So it's a category mistake. And scripture makes it quite clear that faith, James goes over this over and over again, faith without works is dead. Works do not save you, but faith works. So, so if you, yeah, I yeah. know I, I find those kind of interesting thought experiments. And maybe if we were involved in Lincoln-Douglas debate at, at the high school level, that that might be something we would right. talk about. More. Right. So if, if the person is not acting appropriately, then you have a reason to question. It's like, what does it mean to say they're believing true things? And so here in the book and what you, I think you get into the rest of this time and I want to talk about is that when you see people actually believing the right things and actually following the example of Jesus, what kind of comes from that? So you ask the book here, or you ask the question here in your book. Um, and so obviously the, the rest of the conversation is kind of leading into this. And so maybe you can kind of give a small uh, picture, but it says, what kind of world would unfold if smart, determined people lived as if Jesus really was the truth? What are you getting at there? What I'm getting at is, especially in times of crisis, how we live our lives matters matters the most. It matters more. In fact, it's more important to speak up, to speak truth in times of crisis, even than in times of peace. So I just went back and looked at some of the great examples where that was the case in the course of history. And it turns out that people who believed that Jesus is the truth are the ones who gave us all these incredible innovations. And as I mentioned, there are about 75 different stories, many of which have, haven't been told in print that I'm aware of. I, I mean, I've read everything, but I do, I do read a lot. And, and the, uh, just, let me just give you an example. Most of it's an unintended consequence. None of, none of these are people who wrote on their freshman application to college, I want to change the world. You know, they didn't set out, they didn't do that. They never imagined that they would change the world. In fact, many of them went to their grave thinking that their life's work had been a failure. Think about that. Most of the founders of the United States, for example, went to their graves thinking that the American experiment was going to fail. So they just, they just acted faithfully. Here's an example. One of the early universities was Oxford University, top 15 universities in the world. All were started as Christian institutions. The, uh, the Oxford University was among them. At Oxford University, there was a professor named John Wycliffe, and he wanted to translate the Bible into English. This presented a problem. It, Latin was considered to be the most pure language. Translating the Bible into English, which was still not standardized as a language, would be, it'd be the equivalent thing of saying, I'm going to translate the Bible, and every third word is going to be a curse word. You know, just it would be so... It would be so offensive. You just wouldn't do it. So his argument was, well, Moses heard from God in his own language. The disciples heard from Jesus in their own language. People today need to hear from God in their own language. So in order to write the Bible and write out the Bible in English, translate it into English, he standardized the English language. In fact, he invented more than 1,100 words in English and used them for the very first time in his translation of the Bible. 
Hmm. Well, that created a st- not only an English translation of the Bible, but a standardized English. And to this day, that standardized English is the number one trade language in the world. Yeah. It, that His simple act of risking being burned at the stake in order to put the Bible into English literally affects every single moment of every single day for virtually everybody on this planet. Yeah, and it's amazing. There's those stories that we don't know. And so I'm kind of curious with the 75 different stories that you mentioned, you know, I know that when I was a missionary and I would read missionary biographies, right, it's very inspiring to kind of see what people have done that have come before us. And we see that example uh, in scripture as well. And so kind of why, what would you say as far as why is it important for us to to learn about these stories, to hear the examples of historical Christians committing their lives to truth uh, for Jesus? Like, what is this? How is this important for us? Several years ago, I was I was reading through the Psalms, and which I do every year. But uh, somehow, when I read Psalm seventy eight, something became clear to me that hadn't really occurred to me before, or hadn't really been top of mind. And that is where the the author of the Psalm, and it's a great, it's a it's a very important hymn in Jewish history. But it, the the hymn says we that we need to recall. The, we need to tell our children the great truths so that they are not like their forefathers whose hearts were not steadfast. That somehow telling the stories of things that people did in the past, quirky people, people who were inconsistent, people who were grumpy often, it doesn't matter. They were real people that we can, by somehow telling their stories, we connect hands with the past, that we realize that humanity isn't just us and then maybe something that we have to learn in history class just because that happened hundreds of years ago by people whose bones are now dust, that it is that it is living, that it is alive. And I thought, so you know, what are these truths that they're talking about in the psalm? And then I looked at Jesus and I realized, you know, Jesus, when he talked about the Old Testament, never said it used to be said or it was said, he said, it is written. Now, maybe that's just a quirky little understanding, but it seemed that Jesus treated scripture as alive, that it was always living, that the past isn't, you know, just in the past. It is, it's, it's now. So that's where I felt those stories really are helpful. Plus, if you if you realize that people in the past stood strong in times of crisis rather than becoming uh, weak in times of crisis, rather than becoming fragile in times of crisis, it can give you the backbone that you need to stand strong, which helps you in every other area of life. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is an encouraging thing for sure. Now, what about the person who says, but the world is different now. Uh, they they live in a different they lived in a different time and really kind of it just things are going so bad and things are getting going downhill so quickly really it's just hopeless it's lost what can I do and kind of we have what you talked about at the beginning of this very kind of hopeless point of like what can I what can I do what what kind of change can I make what kind of encouragement would you give someone that's feeling that sense of hopelessness that it's just hopelessly broken yeah <laughs> I would first say you're not alone in thinking that up to eighty five percent of people in polls say they live with a sense of impending doom hmm. and something bad is just around the corner. But the point I'm trying to make, well, and that's why I started the book with the plague. I, I just figured let's go back to the worst 
possible imaginable moment in all of human history where a third to half of the people died. What came out of that? How did those people work through that time of crisis to make a better world? And, and it turns out they did. They, they innovated economically and scientifically and in terms of medicine and charity and everything else. So I, I want people to be encouraged by that. But I also want people to recognize that there's an, you've got the time that you have. God chose you to be here now. I remember a college friend of mine, he and his wife were saying, uh, you know, I don't know if we're going to ever have kids because who wants to bring a child into a world like this? And I told them, look, Will Durant, when he did his massive study of all of human civilization, said that in the 3000 years of history for which we have documentation, only 268 years were completely at peace. Hmm. If you wait around until you think things are peaceful and nice before you attempt to make a difference, you are missing the entire point of life and the entire point of history. Yeah. Yeah. And it really is uh, that encouragement. I know you talk about this in understanding the culture of the different Christian approaches of, of, and the, and the one of the biblical approaches, Christ, the transformer of culture and, and trying to see how Christ is able to transform all different areas of culture. And I know one of the difficulties there with that is that in order to make a difference, we need to be able to have those productive conversations, have dialogue, be able to persuade yeah. people of different views. And really, I think that's something that is kind of seemingly breaking down in our culture today is to be able to have that sort of dialogue. So what kind of encouragement do you have for people to kind of speak up in that way, uh, build trust in what they're saying is, and have productive dialogue that can lead to persuasion of what is best and how we can create change in, the, in, in our culture? One of the questions I like to ask when I'm facing a question like that is, what are the barriers that would stop us? Most people say, I think it would be better if we listened to one another instead of yelled. I think it would be better if we got along. I think unity is a good idea. People despair that we can ever be unified, but they still hold it out as an ideal. So what are the things that would stop us? And my conclusion, Ryan, is one of the main things that stops us is fear. We, we just, I, I've done a lot of polling. So, you know, one of the things you know about this, one of the things we do at Summit Ministries is intensive research on our cultural moment. So I work with George Barna on different things, the Barna Group. We work with other companies. We, we, we do a lot of studies of our graduates of our program, but we also do national polling through the McLaughlin Group, which is a well-respected national pollster. And we can do polls every month if we want, and we've done dozens of them now at this point. And one of the things we're finding is people are really afraid. They're genuinely afraid not just that they will be canceled. Up to 75% of people say they have opinions they're afraid to share because they might lose their job. Yeah. They're, they're really afraid they'll lose their livelihood. And even people who aren't afraid of losing their job say, you know what, I know what's true, but I don't say anything so as not to offend anyone. Our desire to be nice is now at odds with what's best for the world, which is that we understand, acknowledge, and pursue truth. So... I looked at that fear. Where does that come from? And here's what's weird, Ryan. In the polls, and I can prove this, 5 to 8% of people in America are real jerks. 
it's five to eight percent. I mean, real jerks. They think that Christians should have no voice, that Christians should be squelched. They believe the best response to conflict is to, quote, cut other people out of my life, end quote. It's five to eight percent of the population. Hmm. So that means out of every 20 conversations you have, there is a chance that one or two of those might be with somebody who's angry. Hmm. One or two. But that fear of the one or two stops us from having the conversations with the other 18. Interesting. Once I realized that, it changed everything for me. I mean, my confidence grew so much because I realized most people are just like me. They want to have a sense of purpose. They want meaning in their lives. They're searching around. They want to talk to other people who are finding meaning. They don't, they're, they're not angry. They're not waiting to just beat down on you with all of their slogans. Yes, there are people like that. And, and by the way, they are overrepresented in social media, primarily because social media is a form of business that is designed for making profit, profit by monetizing anger. So in, in order to see what I'm talking about, you have to get off of social media and actually talk to the people you meet, the server at the restaurant, the people you work with, the people you ride on the subway with or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. And it's amazing that when, as you just mentioned, when you start getting into those conversations, and that's one of those things that I think uh, we do with Maven, right? And, and forcing students to get out and have conversations and they spend a week evangelizing at some place around the United States and like, wow, I, there's actually a lot of people that are willing to talk about these things. And it really is an encouraging thing, uh, but also kind of a freeing thing a little bit of like, hey, I can have these sort of conversations and not everyone is just acting the way that we do online maybe and what they see in the comment section of YouTube videos like this one coming up. So yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> now in well, your what book, people don't yeah, respect, what, what people don't respect is when you're squishy. And that, that was the you thing know, I was thinking nobody about Nobody likes too. that. Yeah. yeah. And, and you can see through someone when they're just, well, you know, but, you know, and they're always saying something that nice and, and, and squishy, like you said, of, of trying to just make everybody happy. And it's like, dude, just speak your mind. Like, so, you know, I think that there's a lot of students today, especially, you know, in my classroom and stuff. It's like, I just want you to be honest with me. Tell me what you think about this. And yeah. they may not agree with everything I have to say, but it's, it's better than have someone that's always saying the right thing uh, and contradicting themselves. And I think there is at least some getting back to that honesty that people want you to, to give to them. Um, now, I think another thing along with that is, is one of the chapters in your book, you talk about justice. And, and, and this is one that maybe doesn't come up as much of how Jesus followers really have shaped uh, the pursuit of justice in our culture. And I, and I want to discuss this because I also think it's something not only that is deep down a desire for us that we have, is that we want justice. But it's also a big question, objection against Christianity of like, well, if if there's is true justice and why, why it is the, you know, good person go to hell or the bad person get to be saved. And, and how is there actually justice within this view? And so, um, I see it as kind of an objection against Christianity, but then also a deep desire that people have. Uh, and so I love kind of talking about justice because I've seen kids in my classroom start to realize, wow, within a secular view, there is no true justice. And, and that is something I do desire. I want things to be set right. And, and so how is it in your book that you go about explaining how Christ followers have really shaped the pursuit of justice? Yeah. Well, let me back up just a little bit because the, the, you pointed out something about the secular worldview. There are really, uh, you know, there are probably four different views of people who say no such thing as truth exists or can be known. And what do they end up with? And they usually end up with, well, uh, truth is whatever helps you win, sort of a sophistic view. 
uh, they end up with, well, truth is just window dressing. It's not really relevant, sort of a deflationist view. They end up with the pluralist view. Hey, can't we all just get along kind of thing? Or they end up with a pragmatist view that says, well, truth is whatever works. We don't really ever know what's true. We just know what works because if we don't do what works, we end up just getting hammered by the reality. Then we get back up and say, I guess that wasn't the right way. And then we try, <laughs> we try again. That's kind of where you end up. So when, when you talk about modern, a modern understanding of justice, you, people go to documents where there's consensus. Like we agree. For example, the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights, 1948. If you look at that document, it doesn't say like the United States documents of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution say that every person has value and that government is there to secure our rights. It just says because there is consensus among the signing nations on these points about rights, we therefore propose and then list out the document. Well, Jacques Maritain, who was a Catholic theologian, was asked about this and he quipped very famously, well, we all agree that there are rights as long as no one asks us why. Hmm. Now, that's sort of the modern idea. We, we have rights. Why do we have human rights? Because we agree that we do. And that's it. Right. You can't have anything right. above that. Well, that doesn't help you a lot with nations that don't agree. You know, after after this is this is why the document was put forward in 1948 because of the Nazis. They they said we don't care what you think about us. We have our own sovereign nation. We'll kill as many people as we want. And the world said no. You can't kill as many people as you want. And the Nazis said why not? We're a sovereign nation. We we just we're just following the orders of our leaders. And, and the world, from a secular perspective, had no real response to that. And, and nobody was willing to step forward and say, you violated the image of God. You, you know, you, you mistreated people. People are, have inherent value because they are image bearers of God. No one was willing to step forward to say that. So what did they replace it with? Basically this, we have the right to judge you because we won. Right. Which of course then begs the question, if we had lost, would they then have the right to judge us and be morally superior? Yeah. So this is this is really complicated, but when so I went all the way back. You, I mean, you see a lot about justice in the Old Testament. You know, Amos talks about this. He says he says if you're if you're acting unjustly, I, I, you know, God doesn't really care about your potlucks. He does not really care about your prayer meetings. He does not care about your worship sessions. There's this shocking passage in Amos chapter five, where he, he says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. And then he goes on to say, won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any light in it? And then he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not regard your fellowship offerings of, of fattened cattle. He says, take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water 
and righteousness like an unfailing stream. God cares a lot about justice. And people through history looked at that and said, wow, if God cares that much about justice, I need to be caring about justice. And they applied this in a lot of interesting ways. One of the ways I studied in the book, which, uh, which is also in understanding the culture, in the chapter on just war, uh, you know, how do we, how do Christians view military force? Right. It is, it is the idea that, hey, you know what? War is going to be with us. We are going to have war because we are broken human beings and we fight with each other. So the question is not, can we completely stop war? The question is, how do we make sure that we have just war, that we have a right. just intent, that it is a government that is authorizing the war and not an individual or a company? How do we make sure that civilian casualties are limited and that the means are proportional in all of those things? And the nations that follow that have moved significantly toward peace as a result. Well, that came entirely out of the Christian considerations of two guys, Augustine and Aquinas. So yeah. you go from there, international law, even administrative law. I mean, I can't turn on the tap and get a drink of water without all kinds of justice issues coming into play. Right. Yeah. And we just don't even realize how all of these things are involved and connected. Uh, I, you know, I uh, Planned Parenthood frequently posts on uh, Twitter that, uh, that, you know, all healthcare decisions should just be between the patient and a doctor and no politician should get involved. And it's like, no politician should be involved in healthcare decisions. Like you don't think there should be any laws governing healthcare decisions and what is an option and what's not an option. Um, you know, I don't know if this is a true, like absolutely true, but I feel like in the healthcare world, there's probably more regulations and laws governing healthcare decisions than maybe in a lot of other areas. But as you just mentioned, even just turning yeah. on your water requires laws and requires that system. Now, right. with that, um, you know, I, I recently had a student come to me and I think someone was telling this person like, you know, Christians shouldn't get involved in politics. Uh, Christians shouldn't vote, you know, that sort of thing. Just kind of let, focus on God, focus on your spirituality and like let the culture do its thing. So the student was coming to me and asking, hey, do you think Christians should vote? Not just who to vote for, but just vote in general. And so there's kind of this uh, understanding or at least or this position um, Sometimes Christians don't vote and I hear high numbers of the number of Christians that don't get out and vote and almost like it's this two different worlds. Christianity and politics don't mix. Yet in this book, you talk about how really it was Christians then acting on biblical beliefs and following Jesus that, as you put here, um, changed politics. So how did Christians change politics? Yeah. Well, Ryan, I should make it clear here. I'm not asking people to pick sides in, <laughs> in, in, in the political battles of our day. I just want to point out that all of the things that we take for granted in these political structures that have allowed the United States of America, and again, I know people are listening from other countries. I'm just speaking as an American here, have allowed the United States of America to become a self-healing nation, a nation that can make moral progress. That's that's baked into the Constitution. Well, why is it there? You know, I'm, I'm not going to be the one saying that the United States is a Christian nation. I don't think the United States is a new Israel. I think people might use that idea symbolically to refer to any nation. And I, I would expect that people all over the world do that. But the, if you look at the founders of the United States, just take the signers of the Declaration of Independence, 51 perhaps up to 53 of them were known to have been Christians. 
of the larger group of 204 founding fathers who worked in the Constitutional Convention, signed, signed on to the Constitution, represented their state and so forth, 204, all but three or four were known to have been members of Christian denominations. Now, obviously, being a member of a Christian denomination doesn't make you a Christian, <laughs> but it does give us insight. Where would you look to find the sources of information these people used to develop a republic that would be self-healing, that would guarantee more rights and provide more prosperity and opportunity for flourishing than any other, other nation ever. Well, it turns out Donald Lutz, a, a political science professor, actually added it all up. He found that of the 15,000 documents or quote, uh, sources that the founders quoted from, they quoted from the Bible more than all of the others put together. Hmm. Well, why would they do that? Not just because they're trying to find Bible verses to prove their favorite point. They did it because they believed that God had established in ancient Israel the most advanced system of laws, ethical laws, but also sanitary laws, and uh, all, you know, in, in laws relating to protecting slaves, no such laws ever existed, laws elevating women and children, no such laws that existed in other nations, and that God had done this through a republic. It was not a theocracy, but it was a republic. That was the conviction of the founders, and it was a very common belief in the 1700s. So they looked to Scripture to see what kind of wisdom the God of the ages could give us so that we could make our nation better. And a lot of the innovations that came out of that were things like the separation of powers. Why would you separate powers? Because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, how do we know that? Because we're, we can recognize through the testimony of Scripture and of human history that human beings are broken and that we will mistreat one another if we are given power. So you share power. Simple things like that. Why should Christians get involved? Because God commands it. And I, I've had people challenge me on that, say, God doesn't command it. Yes, he does. In Romans chapter 13, he says, you must obey the ruling authorities. Okay, great. That means I obey the president, but that doesn't mean I get involved. No, 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 no. Abraham Lincoln said, this is government of the people, by the people, and for the people. The president is not your ruler. The president is your servant. The members of Congress are not your rulers. They are your servants. The people who work for DMV, even though they don't act like it, are not your rulers. They are your servants. They work for you. You are the rulers. So in order to, in the American context, to obey God's command in Romans 13, you have to be involved. It's ungodly not to be. So with that, kind of in our final few minutes that we have, is there one of these stories uh, that you share in your book that maybe surprised you the most or maybe is the most encouraging so that when we are trying to encourage those who are listening here in the final moments of, hey, get out there and be people of faith that truly transform the world. Is there one of these yeah. stories that kind of is the most encouraging to really kind of finish with and kind of empower <laughs> those to get out and do some transformation work? <laughs> wow, there are so many. I think one of my favorite ones and maybe one of the most surprising was in the world of the arts because there, there hasn't been a lot of genuine, deep Christian thinking about the arts. At least, you know, I have a lot of books in my library up this room and an entire other room of books. And I have five maybe on Christianity and the arts. And most of them are very small, almost like pamphlets. 
So as I was looking over this, I realized there is a way to be an artist and maintain your Christian vocation. And there were there are so many. I but in the book I tell the story of Antonio Vivaldi. He was a priest who wasn't a very good priest because he was so consumed with music. He would leave if he'd be administering mass and then leave right in the middle to go write down some musical passages. Everybody was irritated, and he found his purpose in Christian ministry by becoming a composer for orphans. And in the book, I tell the whole story of exactly how this transpired, but he ended up becoming a better composer because he composed for them. And he ended up then shaping the Baroque period of music, which changed the whole course of musical history. It is possible to take your faith and the, something that God has put into your heart to do and do them in a way that brings blessing to other people hmm. and secures change for generations. Yeah. Wow. So amazing. Well, um, as we finish up then, um, where can kind of people go? Uh, obviously, Summit Ministries, kind of get more information on summer conferences, the work that you're doing, the work Summit's doing, as well as pick up a copy of this book. I would like for every 16 to 22-year-old to have the opportunity to come study with my colleagues and me in Colorado or our in uh, Lookout Mountain, Georgia, this coming summer. And those dates are going to be posted at summit.org, as well as all the information about those experiences, which are really transformative for students. As far as the book is concerned, I would just Google, Truth Changes Everything. And it weirdly, even though I know I should say, come to my website to buy the book, I'm going to say, buy the book wherever you usually buy books. Because, for example, we noticed as we were looking at Amazon today that it was, I was doing more interviews, more people were buying the book. And five people, 10 people, 100 people buying the book moves it right up to the top of their algorithm. And they, in turn, begin recommending the book to other people. So to me, this isn't just about selling books. This is getting the message out. We're at a tipping point. We need to learn how to stand for truth, especially in times of crisis. And it will change everything, not only for us, but for the world. And that's the message I want to get out there. So sometimes folks buying that book in public places like Amazon, that really does help. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. And my dad just posted, thanks for the conversation at Summit over dinner that first uh, evening. Uh, but I just so appreciate the work that you've done, the work that you've done in this book, as well as at Summit, and for coming on and talking with me about it. Well, thanks, Ryan. I appreciate you. Thanks for your show. Thank you for the way you personally invest. And I hope that everybody who watches and listens notices how Ryan's asking these questions. He is in the arena. So thank you, brother, for being a champion for truth. Absolutely appreciate it. All right, everybody, there again is that book. Go check it out. Go buy it and learn how Christians have changed the world and empower you to do so. Because again, me, Ryan Pauly, at ThinkWell, my goal is to encourage you to think well and to challenge you to think well so that you go out and make a difference, engaging the culture with a biblical worldview. And I do that through having these conversations, other conversations that are coming up. Just booked one with Dr. Frank Turek on his book, Hollywood Heroes, kind of different, but how your favorite movies reveal God. We just kind of talked about there at the end of how Christians have shaped the arts. And there are a lot of Christian themes that come out in the famous movies today. So you can check that out as well as the other book that just recently came in again, starting to book interviews on this one, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. And so there's going to be other conversations coming up, trying to expose you to Christian thinkers, to train you to think well, as well as other tons of videos that have been already produced to get you to continue to think well and be prepared for those conversations that you're going to have when you get out there and try to make a difference. If you want to help support and come alongside this 
ministry as we are trying to train Christians. You can do so at the website there, think-well.org and find all the ways to donate and support and come alongside this ministry. Thank you guys so much for listening. Share this with someone who can benefit from it. And I will see you again with another conversation in the future. Until then, continue to think deeply about God, Christianity, and Jesus, because as always, they are worth thinking about. God bless everybody. See you next time. To follow your love.